Amen. Uh, Brothers and sisters, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. Last year when I had the opportunity to preach here on a Wednesday night, I selected a particular date because I wanted to be here when they were celebrating Ed's 30th anniversary. Uh, Today and this summer, I selected this evening for another specific reason, and that is that this week marks the 15th anniversary of the first day I walked into this building on a Wednesday night in 2008. That would have been June 4th. If you would indulge me for just a moment, I want to tell you a little bit about my initial experience as an intern when I first arrived here at the church. Uh, In the summer of 2008, I had been working for the Salvation Army, the Militarezza della Salvezza in Italy, in Rome. It's uh, a lot of military, not a lot of salvation. And while, we were, while I was there, I spent a good amount of time um, preaching the gospel to everyone that I could. And then on my last day there, I realized I might never come back to this city again. So I made sure I saw everything for one last time, just in case I never returned. So that night, I was up almost all night. I went to the Spanish Steps, and I was in the, the Forum. I was around the Coliseum with all the crazy drunk people for a little while. I was everywhere in that city. I wasn't one of them, FYI. And then I got about an hour and a half or two hours of sleep, got on a train, got to the airport, got to New York, and then didn't know how to contact North Shore Baptist Church or anyone here. And nobody was there at the time. So I found their number somehow, I can't remember, and I used what was probably the last payphone at LaGuardia or at JFK. And I contacted Raina Carlson, who happened to be here in the office, who contacted Ed, who showed up sometime later that evening, and took me to his house. That was a Tuesday, June 3rd, 2008. When I arrived at his house, I looked a lot different than I do now. I was skinny, uh, and I looked like the Catholic version of Jesus. And so I walked into the door, and Charlie Moore said to me, Are you the one, or should we expect another? (laughs) I don't know if you still do this, but then I experienced something called... The interrogation, where they asked for about two hours various questions to get to know me, which was a wonderful time. It was during that time that George Marsh came to the house, and I met George Marsh for the very first time, and I learned that I would be staying with him that summer. Thank you again for letting me hang out in your house that year. After that, I went out with the interns, and we did what was called family sprints. Now you guys play a fun game. Back then, it was actual sprints until one o'clock in the morning. Now, if you're tracking with me, I have now been on two hours of sleep roughly, and then I was awake at this point for roughly 27 hours, and then Ed hands me a t-shirt that I believe, I could be wrong, but I think Dave Yaros made it, and he made a hat that he gave me, and it said, Jesus is Lord, and he gave me this t-shirt and said, tomorrow, wear this to Wednesday night worship. Do you remember this? So... The next day, I end up spending time with the March family most of the, most of the morning. Then I came here that evening. I walked in those doors. The first time I ever came in, Ed was standing right there in the middle with two interns next to him, both of them wearing the shirt, and I was not. I got home that evening, took the shirt, dropped it on the ground, and slept like a rock, 
and never remembered. So that means the first mission I ever had as an intern, I saw Ed's face and knew I failed. (laughs) And at the end of the summer, he said, you know, you did pretty good. The first day, you didn't wear the shirt, and I was wondering, is this guy going to be one of those interns? But you picked it up there. So interns, this message is for you. If you had a bad first day or second day, there's redemption, and if you just keep trying, you might be here 15 years later. So, amen. So, enough silliness. Let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. This is the Word of God, the Word from God, the Word for you given by God, the Word that is for our hearts tonight, delivered by the eternal King of the universe. This is God's word. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or, if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Our God, we do thank you that you put passages like this one in the Bible for us. Passages of historical importance, passages of spiritual importance. Father God, I thank you that you put this word for us tonight by your providence and by your plan, so that there will be those in this room who will be convicted of sin and they will be conformed into the image of Christ. 
And I thank you, Lord, that you give us this word so that there are those who are lost that will hear the good news of Jesus Christ and be saved. And we pray, Lord, that you would do that very thing and give faith to those who do not have this evening. And Lord, we pray for everyone in this room that by the preaching of the word, we will be transformed from one glory to the next. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When studying the Word of God, there is some requirement for Christians to read the Bible backwards. We have to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We must draw the broader revelation of the New Covenant back into these more primitive passages that point forward to the coming of Christ. So it's absolutely necessary for me to jump a little bit ahead and reveal a little bit about what we know of Lot so that we can understand the entirety of his story and how that fits into the unfolding drama of God's covenantal love. So before forging ahead, we need to understand three things about Lot. First, you need to know that Lot is not a villain. This is an important distinction. Unlike most characters in the Old Testament, Abram doesn't really have a main villain. Moses has Pharaoh, and then Moses really has the complaining people of Israel. Elijah has Ahab. Daniel has the earthly rulers and dominions. David has Saul before he's king. And then really David has himself as his main enemy after he is king. We see villains all over the place. But Lot is not a villain. He is something else entirely. Which brings us to the second thing that you need to know about him, and that is that Lot is a righteous man. Now, that's probably a difficult pill to swallow because if you know your Bibles at all, I mean, even mildly know the book of Genesis, you look at this guy and you think, how on earth could you possibly describe that person as righteous? This person who is perhaps the most egregious person and does the most disturbing actions of anyone that God describes as righteous. Consider what we read in the New Testament words, 2 Peter chapter 2, 7 and 8. It says, and if he rescued righteous Lot, righteous Lot, righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man, speaking of Lot, lived among them, the Sodomites in Sodom and Gomorrah, day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul, his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Three times in one sentence he is called righteous. Lot is a righteous man, not a perfect man, not even necessarily a good man. It means that he must be considered a saved man, a saint of the Old Testament. It makes the most sense to me that this transformation probably took place before he ever went to Sodom or Gomorrah. It looks like to me this happens while he was living with the one person who actually had verbal conversations with God during this time, his uncle Abram. It seems to me like he probably knew God and was righteous at the time of Genesis chapter 13. Lot is righteous. The last time God spoke to anyone verbally, it was Noah, and then he hit the global reset button with the flood, and now Abram is literally the only man on the planet alive communicating with God, and this man happens to be with him, and this man happens to be called righteous. It seems to me that before the events of this chapter take place, Lot must have already known and followed after God. But this is important for us to remember because it would be really easy for us to read a chapter like this and to write Lot off as a raw pagan 
a wicked man like Esau who was totally disinterested in the things of God. But we can identify with him in that he was a follower of God, but he wasn't a good one. And you have been that at times, and so have I. He was a follower of God who made mistakes and who acted foolishly. And we're going to see how that applies to us directly today. The third thing that you need to know about Lot before we dive directly into the text is that Lot is a foil, F-O-I-L, foil. What does that mean? Well, authors, particularly screenwriters, have become very fond of using this term in recent years. According to Screenwriters Manual, which Wikipedia, a foil is, quote, any narrative... In any narrative, a foil is a character who contrasts with another character, typically a character who contrasts with the protagonists, in order to better highlight or or differentiate certain qualities of the protagonist. They are there specifically so that you can see what is different between these two individuals. Lot is not here as a villain. He is not the main character. He is here to bring light to the distinct characteristics at play in the heart and the life of Abram. We are seeing already in the heart of Abram, although it's imperfect, that it is a heart filled with faith in God. Now tonight we're going to consider three truths from this chapter that we can glean by seeing how Moses functions and uses Lot as a foil for Abram. Now just as one last heads up, I know I am going to make a lot of mistakes tonight in the form of calling Abram Abraham. Just roll with it. It's going to happen. Just, just stick with me. Point number one, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, let's begin this point by getting our grounding as far as the cultural significance and relevance of what's taking place at this event. <clears throat> it can be incredibly easy for us to breeze by a moment like this as nothing more than a flyover chapter in the Bible, as nothing more than a footnote of history to the bigger story of God's covenantal work in Abram's life. But nothing could be further from the truth because like Inception, this event was a watershed moment within the life of Abram, which itself is a watershed moment in history. Our story begins with the problem of Abram and Lot having too much stuff. They had too much stuff to live together. There was too much livestock to feed, and there was too little grass to go around. Now, let me ask the question, why is that the case? Where did all of that excess come from? If you were here last Wednesday, you should know the answer to that question. Many of these animals were given to Abram by Pharaoh, probably as payment for Sarai. Now, just as a side note, there is only one other thing that comes from Egypt that shows up in the narrative of Abram and Sarai. Do you know what that is? There's one other thing in their possession. We find her in a couple of chapters. Her name is Hagar, the Egyptian handmaiden. Where did she come from? Now, there probably were not that many Egyptian women just wandering around the wilderness of Canaan that happened into their camp and became a handmaiden just because she felt like it. Most likely, this woman became a handmaiden when she was in the house of Pharaoh, and then when she was expelled, Hagar remained with her back to the promised land. Now, this is truly another sermon for another time, but for now, you just need to keep in mind that all sin has long-range effects. Every single time you sin, it is literally impossible to calculate the infinite ripple effects radiating through time. Your sin affects everyone around you, oftentimes more than it affects you, and it will outlive you. Now, Abraham and Lot are in this awkward situation. They're at a point where they literally must separate their camps 
or what's going to happen. Not just that their employees are going to fight each other. What's going to happen is their wealth, their animals are literally going to die. They can't remain together. It's a mathematical problem. Now, let me try to help modernize this problem for us. There is a unique selfishness that exists that I have observed on display when someone dies and leaves behind them an inheritance. And perhaps you've seen this as a pastor, where sometimes there is an inheritance left behind. And what takes place is this. One of the saddest things that I have observed over time is that families will tear each other apart as they scratch and claw to claim whatever scraps are left over. That is mine. Now, let's say that one of your close relatives were to die tonight while we're here in this room. I'm sorry. Now, in a few days, you were told that your relative had two houses. One of those houses is your dream house. Now, I don't know what your dream house is, if it's like the 37th floor penthouse of some big building in the city, or if it's like a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere where you can be isolated. I don't know. Whatever your dream of super awesome six-bedroom, five-bathroom, perfect lawn, garage, whatever house, that is one of the houses. And then there's another one across the street, just a little down the road, that in 1999 had a fire on one side, and they never fixed it, and the roof is now caved in, and it's become really a home for rats and mice and whatever other things can find their way in there. And those two houses are now being given in the will. Now, there are only two people named in the will. There are only two beneficiaries. There's you, and then there is another relative, one that is a distant relative, one that is half your age. And here's what the will stipulates. It says, each one of you will get one house. You cannot sell the house. You must live in the house. Now, you decide which one of you gets which. If you were in this scenario, if this was a real scenario, every single person in this room, bar none, every one of us would have in our heart the desire to get the nicer house. And we would do everything necessary. We would try our best to convince that distant cousin that that bigger, nicer house belongs to us by right. I'm the closer relative. I'm the older individual. I'm the one who can take care of it. And whatever other reasons you might be able to fabricate that you could use to explain, this should belong to me. You would do that. Well, in Abram's case, they had to divide this land or they would both get nothing. But instead of pulling the I'm older than you or wiser than you or have watched over you and protected you and changed your diapers when you were a baby card, Abram chose to instead do something that would have been unheard of in his day. He forfeited his rights. He said to his nephew Lot, he said, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me and you take the left hand and I will go to the right or you take the right hand and I'll go to the left. To this day, to this very day, there are wars being fought over the exact land that they're talking about. To this very day, people are fighting and clawing to stand and build houses on that property. And Abram just gave it away. He just said, you pick. Now, Lot becomes a foil for Abram by revealing that Abram was much more preoccupied with peace than he was with personal gain. There was probably no doubt in Abram's mind that Lot would select the choice lands. Everybody looking at the two houses knows who's going to get the one if they get to pick first. They know which one you're going to select. He probably knew that by attempting to make peace, it would come at an immense personal cost to himself. The fact is, making peace always 
requires humility, and it usually requires self-sacrifice, and it typically necessitates giving up your rights. This has never been more clearly displayed than it is in the person of Jesus Christ. He was worshipped in heaven by angels since the time the angels were created. Their entire purpose in coming into being was to glorify him. And then in humility, that Jesus, king of the universe Jesus, stepped into his own creation, not just to become like us, but to become us, to be one of us. The act of adding a human nature to his divine nature is not described in terms of addition in the Bible. Like if you think of that, he's got one nature and now it becomes two. Mathematically, you think addition. Listen to how the Bible describes it. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Taking on human nature equals emptying himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Well, Jesus taking on human nature is described as self-inflicted draining of something. But what? Was it that Jesus, what was it that Jesus laid down? It certainly was not his deity, for certainly he was fully God, and it definitely wasn't his intrinsic glory. He was always perfectly glorious and always worthy of all praise. That's proven by the fact that at his birth, all of the angels show up in the sky and are singing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's proven, yes, he still retains his intrinsic glory. At least in part, what this is speaking about is the extrinsic glory of Jesus, the displayed glory, the glory that would make people collapse to their face in fear or draw him to him in awe. It's the glory that would have killed Moses if he would have looked at it. And that he laid down. Now, if you want to know more about this, talk to Matthew Shores. I stole all of this from him. But you need to know that Jesus came to make peace. And he came to make peace of a much more personal kind and over a much greater dispute than over grasslands. He came to reconcile a relational breach of an infinitely greater division than an uncle, uncle and a nephew having a few employees getting into a scuffle. Long before the cross... Jesus took inestimable, inestimable effort to bring peace at great expense to himself. That expense culminated at the crucifixion. Colossians 3, or 1, 19 through 20 describes it like this. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. How? How did he do that? By making peace by the blood of his cross. Blessed are the peacemakers. Are you a peacemaker? It is not for the faint-hearted to be a peacemaker. Making peace with those who are, by all rights, your enemies, will require intentional moves toward that other person with a heart of self-sacrifice, just like Abram, much more like Jesus. But making peace is worth it. Do you remember how that beatitude concludes? Blessed are the peacemakers, for you shall be called what? Sons of God. That statement is an explosive reality. Who can say that? That God is my father? Who can say that? That I've been adopted into his family? Who can say that? That the eternal God of the universe has made me his own? That's peacemakers. If you genuinely believe that this is true and you even understand an infinitesimal fraction of what it means, then you would make every effort imaginable to be a peacemaker. Now, to be clear, being a peacemaker does not make you a child of God. 
Rather, in acting as a peacemaker, you are, just like Abram, identifying with the Son of God, the peacemaker. And you are being identified with him as a Son of God because you are acting just like him. We have a peacemaker who gave up much more than land to make peace with us. Christian, 1 John 2.16 tells us, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the way that he walked. Is there any relationship that is broken in your life that you might find way to make peace, even if it requires self-sacrifice? As far as it depends on you, as far, literally as far as you can go, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power that can propel that kind of peacemaking mission. Second point of the, of the evening, <clears throat> seek first the kingdom of God. One of the reasons why the division of this land is such a big deal is that Abram was never told at this point whether this is it, whether this is the final stop. He doesn't know. As far as he knew, the land that he was selecting now was going to be the land where he stays forever. So how in the world did he end up with the run-down, junky, pathetic land and still be cool with that? How did he accept that? Well, Hebrews 11 verse 9 tells us the exact reason why he accepted that. It says, By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Okay, so which one do you want, Lot? Pick a side. I don't care. You pick. Why don't I care? I don't care because I have a better place I'm going to. Neither one of these measure up. I don't really care about these. These are just images. These are just pictures. These are just fractions. These are just shadows of what I'm looking for. Lot, I don't care. You pick one. Now, if you jump down to verse 13 in the same chapter, it reads, These all died in faith, speaking of the patriarchs, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them afar off and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. He was seeking a home. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. And likewise, you could add, if he was looking for an earthly home, he would have said, Lot, you can't have that one, that's mine. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Right now, it's the NBA Finals. It's a weird season for the NBA, if you follow it. The NBA playoff season is really the only time of year that I ever watch commercials, and it's because they hold you captive, kind of force you to. A couple of years ago, there was an ad campaign by an alcohol brand that will go unmentioned that asked an incredibly brilliant question. And the question that it asked is, What are you chasing? Now, the way they want you to answer that question somehow leads you to drinking alcohol. I'm not really sure how that works. But that is actually a really good question. How do you answer that question? How do you actually answer that question? Not in the way that you would answer in a job interview. How do you answer that question before God? What are you chasing? There are lots of ways that you could answer that question by looking at your own actions. You could see how you respond to loss. You could look at how you respond to failure. You could see whether or not you're generous or how you fill your time or what are you seeking? How can you tell? Look at your life and you will see. What kind of kingdom are you trying to build? How do you view your own life? 
Are you seeking an earthly kingdom? Are you just looking for that retirement? Are you just looking for that pension? Are you just looking for that earthly recognition? Are you just looking for the reputation? Are you just looking for your own kingdom? Lot here serves as a foil for Abram that reveals that Abram actually did care more about God's kingdom than his own. Now, I truly believe that all of us, even the best of us, have barely scratched the surface of what Jesus means when he tells us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, we are in New York. I just want to tell you a brief story. Last year, I went back to Kansas with my family, and I was so discouraged. And the reason I was discouraged is I met with some people that I knew in high school, and I was so discouraged because one of my friends, he told me basically what he does in his life is he walks to work two blocks away, picks up his kids after school and walks home, and then he watches television until it's time to go to bed. And that's it. Every day of his life, there's no ambition whatsoever. And I was so discouraged. We live in New York where everyone has ambition. We live in New York that is the capital of ambition, where everybody's hunting for something, where everybody wants something. We are in New York, a place filled with the most ambitious people in the world. We are typically chasing a million things at once. Often those can be good things. In this room tonight, there's probably 100,000 goals that have been clearly identified and stated by the people in this room. Goals for your job and for your retirement and for renovation and for vacation and for reading and for writing and for traveling and for advancement. We have goals, we have desires, we have pursuits, we have ambition. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And there is with that an added promise that all of these things will be added unto you. Not that you will necessarily get all of these things that are in your ambitions or our wildest dreams, but that you will certainly always get something that is at least as good or better. For example, Abram allowed Lot to take the better land. Abram graciously accepted the land of notably lesser quality. But it was that land that the Lord told Abram in verses 14 through 17, Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. This is yours, Abram. The one that you got, now it's yours and your descendants. Well, what happened to the land that Lot chose? Now, I don't really want to step on the toes or steal from the future sermon about what's going to happen at Sodom and Gomorrah because I know you don't know. (laughs) But look at verse 10 once again and get a glimpse of the future. It says, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. This place looked like Eden. (laughs) But notice it says, like the land of Egypt, where they just came from, in the direction of Zoar. And then here's this little parenthetical statement. Moses just throws this in there, just in case you haven't read farther in the book yet before, and this is your first time through. He just throws in this little parenthetical statement that says, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The lands that Lot chose were eventually salted with fire and brimstone in furious rage that snuffed out the breath of every lung, human or otherwise, in the land. You think the air quality is bad out there tonight? You think the weather looks like the end of days right now? You can't even begin to imagine the cataclysmic destruction that arose from the holy wrath of God's divine retribution over Sodom and Gomorrah. Those lands were completely destroyed. Lot's inheritance was eliminated, but not Abram's. He sought first the kingdom of God, and the result was an eternal inheritance, a city built by God himself. Now, when you are seeking the kingdom of God first, you are likely going to end up with less stuff on earth. That is true. If you are generous, you are going to end up with less money. That is true. 
If you are hospitable, your things are going to break. That is true. If you are going to operate as God calls you to operate, you're going to lose things. That is true. But you need to know that there is a great reward for seeking first the kingdom of God. The things, the objects that you love in this world, they're not going to matter to you on your deathbed. They're just not. I haven't seen that many people die, but everyone that I have been with, when they have died, not one of them has ever said, oh, that thing that's beside my bed, that trophy of one kind or another, I just really wish I had that right now. Nobody is saying that. At some point, we will probably outlive the luster and shine of everything we own. But the gifts that God gives never lose their shine. Seeking for his kingdom first will result in those kinds of gifts, the gifts that right now have value and that hold their value forever, even into eternity. Just like Abram, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Point number three, bad company corrupts good character. There is a kind of blink and you missed it statement that we find here in verse 12. It says that Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley. And here we go and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, just in case you didn't already know what was coming, Moses adds in verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. In the 1940s, there was a man named Theodore Newcomb who scientifically documented a sociological phenomenon that has come to be called the proximity principle. He wrote about it in a study called Group Dynamics, Research and Theory. Now, he named it this because sociologists have a tendency to be terrible at names and lacking in all imagination. And if you're a sociologist, I'm sorry for you. Um, (laughs) But the principles go like this. You're going to become like the people that you spend the most time with. You will begin to absorb their habits. You're going to collect their mannerisms, and you're going to start to observe their pastimes. And you may even begin to pick up their accent. Last year, when we traveled to Chanute, Kansas, every mile that we got closer, my wife Ashley would mock me because my voice began to collect the twang that exists in the way they communicate there. I hadn't even spoken to anyone. I'm just looking at the road signs, and already it's coming back to me. Now, if you ask me to start speaking like I did when I lived in Chanute, Kansas, I can't. I can't do it intentionally. It just happens. When I speak to you, I will communicate like this because you become like the people you are with. Similarly, similarly, tonight, I am wearing this tie. I am wearing this tie because Ed gave this tie to me. And I am wearing it not like because I didn't wear... I'm wearing it because I didn't wear Dave Yars' shirt. That's the reason I'm wearing it. I'm making up for the... Making up for that. I, I've actually never worn this tie before, Ed. Um, and I've never worn it for two reasons. One is because it has an ink smudge on it somewhere in here, right here. And I think that might be the reason you gave it to me. I'm, I'm not sure. And the second reason why I have never worn it is because it's a tie. But proximity principle... You become like the people you are with. You become like the people you are with. L-I-A-K-E, like those you are with. Now, you need to know, in the next chapter, 
Abram is going to have to rescue Lot. Now, I'm not going to steal from that sermon, too. But the next time we actually see Lot have any agency far farther into the book, the next time he carries out any action himself, what is he doing? He's sitting at the gate of Sodom. He has now become an elder in the city. He didn't just move closer. He moved right up the chain of command to become one of the most recognized and powerful men of the city. We have seen repeatedly in this chapter that Lot's intentions were not informed by wisdom or by righteousness. They were informed by a desire for temporary earthly gain. If I had to guess, I would assume that his thought process started like this. He probably said to himself, I have lots of animals. I don't have lots of other things. I can trade my animals for lots of other things. But in order to trade my animals for lots of other things, I need people with other things. And just so happens to be a city right there. Now, those people are kind of weird and disturbing and debased and disgusting people, but I have to sell these animals to someone, so let me just move my tent a little bit closer, and then a little bit closer, and then a little bit closer. And then after getting taken captive and taken into uh, captivity by some kings that you'll find out about next week, He probably, after being released, thought to himself, you know, it'd be really nice to have some city walls. It'd be really nice to have something to defend me. So now I'll just move into a house inside of the city, and then I'll be safe from these kidnappers and these people who are extorting me. He probably justified these moves every step. If you notice, when it describes where he is going, it says that he moves to the east. Every time someone in Genesis is moving to the east, it's always bad. Adam and Eve moving to the east. The people of Babel moving to the east. Esau moving to the east every time they are leaving the presence or the face of God. That seems like what he is doing here. And he probably justified every single step. But you need to know that bad company corrupts good character. That's 1 Corinthians 15.33. Unlike the first two verses, you should know there's not a comma after that phrase. It's literally just a period. Bad company corrupts good character. It does. Say it with me. Bad company corrupts good character. You should know that by now, that bad company corrupts good character, period. But snap, foiled again. Lot's going to serve as a foil once more, but this time not for Abram, this time for Jesus Christ himself. For just like Lot, righteous Jesus moved toward a wicked city. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Did you hear that? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, or much more literally translated, the word became flesh and tented, like Lot, among us. He tabernacled among us. He did not just move his tent near us. It's like Lot moving into the city with us. He became us. Isaiah, Isaiah cried out, Lord, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Jesus came and lived in that exact same place with those exact same people, yet there was no deceit in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here's the reality. The problem is not proximity. The problem is fallenness. We worship the incorruptible Christ. He was tempted in all ways that we were, in a far greater extreme than we were, by a much greater enemy and more deadly enemy than we can understand after fasting to the brink of human capability. Even so, he did not sin. Jesus, the better lot, 
he is the only one that could walk into a land of overindulgent sin and avoid just joining the party because bad company corrupts our good character, but it did not corrupt him. Spoiler alert, when the judgment eventually does come, the Lord is going to kill the people of Sodom, but he's going to bring Lot out without a scratch. But Jesus experienced the exact opposite. He came into the world, and in his case, he was the innocent one who underwent the fury of God's wrath so that the guilty might be delivered unscathed. Last word to consider tonight. Consider again what it says in 2 Peter 2.7. He rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Lot felt that way about Sodom and Gomorrah being there. If Lot was uncomfortable, if Lot was disgusted, if Lot was tormented by the actions of these evil people, how much more the perfect sinless Christ, how would he feel by living here amongst those who parade sin in front of him every single day. Mary and Joseph, his earthly surrogate parents, were sinners. His siblings, sinners. His disciples, sinners. Literally everyone else in the world, even to this day, sinners. But the incorruptible Christ came and he tabernacled among us and he did not become like us. He did not abandon us when he saw us in this state. And he did not cancel his mission, even when someone like Judas sinned against him. As Ed has been saying from the beginning of his Roman series, at the beginning of every one of those sermons, I want you to know that God loves you. How do you know that? It is evidenced in the fact that Jesus came and he tabernacled with people like you so he could make you people like him. His love towards us is demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. This is good news, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the immense love that you display for us, that you show us the kindness of your soul, of your heart for us in Jesus Christ and his actions. We thank you that he is the ultimate peacemaker. We pray that we would seek his kingdom, and we thank you, Lord, that he is the greater lot, the righteous one who did not become corrupted by our sin, but has forgiven it, who has taken it and paid for it, who has eliminated it for all time and separated it as far as the east is from the west. We thank you, Lord, that we are set free from that bondage. We are set free from Sodom and Gomorrah. We are set free from sin by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Praise God. Amen. All right, a couple of things, and I'll give you an opportunity to ask questions or to make comments. Uh, first of all, I am so impressed with the uh, Christological parallels that you made, which were brilliant. I've never seen any of them before, and you were spot on uh, with uh, every single one of them. Uh, so you did a terrific job with the, uh, with the research, with the exegesis, with the presentation, but then the crossovers to the, uh, to the Christ in, in the entire passage, uh, it was just uh, brilliant and, 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 and heartwarming. Um, I do have something that I want to say to our church, but I'll hold that until uh, closer to the end. Uh, observations that you made tonight, or perhaps um, questions that you might have for Caleb about the sermon this evening. Why do you think 
that um, Lot set up a tent in the presence of the Lord? That's a good question. Actually, at the end of the chapter, it says that it was Abram that set up the tent in the presence of the Lord. It's notable that Lot does not set it up in the presence of the Lord. He sets it up in the presence of the city, of the earthly people. Yeah, Abram at the very end. And I know that last week you talked about the Oaks of Mamre. You talked a little bit about the trees. I listened to that sermon. Great sermon. So I didn't touch that at all. I wanted to. It's great stuff, but... Yeah, Abram goes to the place where he's worshiping the Lord. And if you, if you kind of track out the map of what he's doing at the end of that chapter, he's basically walking around the outer boundaries of where the Israelites are eventually going to stay on that side of the river. Yeah. Good question. So in line with that, is Abraham saying, I genuinely don't care. If you go that way, I'll go this way. It just makes no difference to me because I'm looking for a better city. It's like it's completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Or is Abraham saying... Your preference is more important to me than my preference, and I want yep. you to be pleased and be happy. I mean, I drug you out of Ur of the Chaldees, and I'm, I'm being generous to you. So, so just like when yep. you're out with someone and you have you know, two options with food, yep. you say, take whichever one yep. you want, not because you don't have a preference, but just because you want to please the person yep. you're with. What's he yeah, mean? I would compare it to two things. One is Philippians 2, look not only to your own, but also to those of others. You know, I think that's part of it. But I think there's another part of it, which is certainly, just like when we're tempted with actual sin, there's a part of you that still wants that. Uh, There's a part of you that probably is still desirous of that. And if you allow yourself to linger there, you're going to fall towards that. And I think think because of the way it describes the land like the Garden of Eden, there's no way that he wasn't enticed. I think it's intentionally going over the top so that you will know he wanted it in his heart, but that he was willing to, to be a peacemaker. I think that's what it means. Okay. Mm-hmm. Other questions or comments? Yeah, Jerry. Yeah. Amen. He is an amazing God. Yep. Amen. Good word. What did he say? He's just talking about how amazing God is and how that's displayed in in um, Genesis 13. Yeah. Other questions? Daniel? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think there's a couple of things. So this is obviously not a geographical issue, for example. If it were, everyone would become a hermit because everyone, everyone is a sinner. So there's an element of which we have to understand that... Uh, actually, if you look at, at 1 Corinthians 15, what he's talking about is false teachers about the resurrection. He's talking about people who deny the res- resurrected Christ. Um, but it's important for us to know that when Jesus even was around sinners, like he says that he would go often to sinners, he was never going into brothels. He was never going into the bars. So for example, when he had a big gathering, he has it at Levi's house and everybody comes to him where it's a controlled environment, where he can manage the situation, where people are not debaucherous and celebrating evil all around him. He doesn't go to shrines. He doesn't go to wicked places. He goes to 
um, he goes to places where people are, where he can kind of control the situation. We need to make sure that the people that we are around are not controlling the situation that we are in. And secondly, I think it's much more about the heart than it is about time. All of us work with unbelievers. Uh, all of us, uh, well, I'm a pastor, I work at a church. Some people in my church are unbelievers. Most of you work jobs where you're around unbelievers more than you're around believers. And with some of you live in homes where there are those who are unbelievers. And with that, it means that you are around company. But it's more than just proximity to them. It's about the heart that you have with them. So if you're being primarily influenced by them, I think is the main point. And if you're being influenced by the world, uh, or if you're spending time like making friends with them, you, you find your affection in them, uh, what's going to happen is they're going to subtly influence you, whether you realize it or not. So you need to make sure that the people of God are your primary circle of influence. That's the place where you go for help. That's the place where you go for counsel. That's the place where you seek to find love, that sort of thing. And then you can give to others, but you, you can't really receive from them. So I hope that answers your question a little better. Go say um, a word on the foil, mm-hmm. okay? Um, I'm not really familiar with that word. Mm-hmm. I mean, tinfoil, but other than that, I, I, yeah. I'm not sure. But, like, you, if you're familiar with It's a Wonderful Life, mm-hmm. you have George Bailey, who's the, who's the hero, who does everything right, and then he has Uncle Billy, who is not a villain, mm-hmm. but he is very different than, than George Bailey. Mm-hmm. Forgets everything, does mm-hmm. everything wrong. He's the, he's the, the yeah. character that messes everything up. Yeah. Is that sort of like law? Exactly. Is, he's, yeah. he's designed in that scene. Most scenes have a foil in movies. And so that scene, his purpose there is to show the competency of George Bailey. That's okay. his entire reason for being there. Otherwise, okay. he doesn't have a purpose. I feel you know? that that's sort of my purpose in my marriage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm there to make I'm there I'm here to make you look good okay <laughs> you're contrasted with me and uh, <laughs> did you get that <laughs> last thing and very important I think we as Americans have gotten very far away from this idea of going to a place or being in a place where the thing which will flourish most in our lives is godliness. I think there is the given of the better house, the better job, the better school for my children, the better athletic opportunity, the, 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 the better whatever. So that's in place, that is a given, that's locked in. How dare anybody ever challenge that? Now, after that comes, in order for me to get that or to have that, therefore, well, I would love to serve the Lord, but I can't because these compromises need to be made. This aspect of church life needs to become secondary. These moral compromises need to be made. Why? Because in order to obtain that thing, whatever it is, whether it's a, a house inside the city walls of, of Sodom or whatever. That's the given. I have to be in the house. I have to be inside the walls. I, 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 I want to be in the richer place. Therefore, well, of course I have to live in an environment where I see this or whatever. Whereas if we were to, Matthew six thirty three seek first the kingdom of God and say, do, do, I, have to, do, do I have to live there? Well, of course, Kevin and 
Sarah Kooning are not starting with the, well, I have to live in, in the best place. No, they're moving to Indonesia. They're giving away all of that. Same with the Wiesies. They're giving away all of that so as to advance the kingdom. I, I, I'm worried that sometimes we start with the given of, I have to have, and then I will give God, I will gladly give God whatever is left over. Um, Lot clearly was not seeking first the, the kingdom of God. Uh, brother, every sentence was pregnant with meaning and it was so uh, masterfully delivered. And again, it was so Christocentric and uh, uh, a tremendous blessing. Thank you very much for that. Thank you.